All right. Thanks, uh, John. And I would like to uh, start off by thanking Carla Casulo, who is going to argue on the opposite side, because uh, three weeks ago when I was preparing my slides, I prepared them for the wrong side of the debate that I was assigned, and she gracefully agreed to switch with me. Uh, so thank you, Carla. The uh, irony is that I have been assigned to argue the opposite side of this debate so frequently that um, my wife, who's a, a public psychiatrist and wanders around the streets of Brooklyn coordinating care for uh, people in uh, homeless or, or residences, uh, residential circumstances, she uh, thinks that basically my job is to go to work and do nothing. <laughs> so she was impressed that I got to choose this side of the debate this time. Uh, these are my disclosures. So this is the argument that I have made frequently in the past uh, regarding uh, watch and wait, and I think one of the best arguments for deferring therapy is that doing so is probably not harmful, and I will try to argue against this point now, potentially. So early initiation of therapy may, I'll make a few points, may provide people with the longest possible treatment interval, may treat people when they're the healthiest, may improve quality of life, reduce the risk of transformation, uh, might reduce risk of clonal evolution and prolong survival, and uh, may save money, ironically. So this is the uh, Flippy score. I think everyone is familiar with it. I was, this was the first uh, journal club paper that I presented in my fellowship in hematology. I remember when it first came out. And the Flippy score was designed not to decide on therapy or decide when somebody should get treated, but was simply a retrospective evaluation looking for factors that were associated with overall survival. And you can see these factors here that include a number of nodal sites, LDH, uh, cytopenias. And it clearly is associated with overall survival. In the R uh, rituximab era, the uh, low and intermediate risk uh, groups sort of come together. So it really separates people into two risk groups. These are the GELF criteria, which were designed to decide, uh, tell us when somebody should get therapy, at least in the context of the research study. And you can see, interestingly, that a few of the factors in GELF, including number of enlarged nodal sites, LDH, and cytopenias, are also in the FLIPI score, suggesting that as people start to develop more indications for follicular lymphoma, they may also be moving up in FLIPI score. So why is this relevant? So... Two separate analyses. Flippy was clearly associated with time to treatment uh, in a UK study. So people were uh, observed initially, and then when they developed indications for therapy, they were treated. Those with lower risk Flippy scores uh, could go uh, be observed for longer periods of time. And as, as we know, um, PFS is associated with uh, Flippy scores. So theoretically, if one of our goals is to treat somebody once, and provide them with a very long remission duration, it might arguably be better to treat them early on before they start drifting from FLIPI 1 to down into the higher risk FLIPI scores. So treating them when they're lower risk FLIPI will potentially provide a longer remission duration to that first line of chemotherapy, or first line of therapy, rather. So this, I think, is potentially an argument that demonstrates that. So... This is a study I think many people are familiar with, uh, the UK study led by Ardeshna that looked at observation versus uh, early intervention with rituximab and low tumor burden follicular lymphoma. 
So if we were to treat somebody with typical indications for therapy with rituximab, uh, we might expect that they would get 18 months to two years out of that uh, treatment. In this study, however, you can see that uh, at five years, there are still about three-quarters of patients who are still responding just to single-agent rituximab. So one scenario is you observe somebody for three years, they develop indications for treatment with rituximab, they get treated with rituximab, and they get two years uh, out of that. The other scenario is you treat somebody at the time of diagnosis with low tumor burden follicular lymphoma, and then they go in five years or more without needing any more treatment, which arguably uh, is potentially a better outcome. And interestingly, in the resort study, although there was no difference between uh, rituximab maintenance versus retreatment in terms of overall degree of benefit from rituximab, this again is a study of rituximab in low tumor burden follicular lymphoma, there was, interestingly, a benefit to uh, prolonging the time to cytotoxic chemotherapy in patients who got more rituximab. So this, I guess, I put these together because I think theoretically it argues that earlier intervention with a less intensive therapy and potentially more of that therapy can prolong time to a more intensive therapy. So I also mentioned that we would like to treat people when they're healthiest. So this is a study from Canada that showed that, in fact, as we watch patients, they tend to get sicker, and this is not surprising. I personally have had a patient with follicular lymphoma with a three-centimeter inguinal lymph node that I was watching. It was not changing in size, but one day he arrived with a blood clot in his leg. We treated the blood clot. He got a subdural hematoma. Now he's got somebody who's a hematoma and a clot at the same time. And I wondered, well, was I doing the right thing by watching him? And this study shows that, in fact, people do have progressive decline in their health as we watch them. Not many of them, but about a quarter of people will develop a variety of issues as we're watching them. Anxiety as well is a significant issue in uh, people with indolent lymphoma. I'm sure that many of us can imagine if we were told that we had cancer, and by the way, we're just not going to do anything about it, it can uh, result in some anxiety. And in the Ardeshna study that I showed earlier, where people randomized to rituximab versus watch and wait, you can see that in the um, social and emotional, uh, social and family, family well-being and the emotional well-being, in the watch and wait group at six months, there was a decline in those scores as opposed to in the rituximab uh, arms where there was no decline. Now, later on, actually, those scores started to come back together again, suggesting that over time, people get used to it. But there is clearly a, a period of time uh, there that anxiety is a problem. And I, I think it's very fair to say that <coughs> Rituximab is an expensive and invasive form of psychotherapy, if that's the reason we're using it. But it's clear that uh, there are issues, emotional issues, that we're not dealing with if we're um, treating people with watch and wait and perhaps not supporting them through that. How about transformation? So transformation, I think, is fortunately something that's uncommon. Maybe about 10% of people typically in the first decade. We all know that it's associated with a very poor outcome. Um, we have learned a lot about uh, relapsing follicular lymphoma, particularly follicular lymphoma that happens within the first two years of life, or first two years after frontline immunochemotherapy. In the PRIMA study, uh, patients who experience transformation tend to experience that earlier, usually within the first year of treatment. Uh, transformation results in a poor overall survival. And in fact, patients that experience 
um, relapse with uh, relapsed lymphoma after immunochemotherapy tended to have transformation. Same thing was shown in a British Columbia study uh, with solely with bendamustine rituximab, an observational study. Only 13% here, not the 20% experienced uh, a progression within the first two years after frontline immunochemotherapy. But almost or over three quarters of those patients had transformed disease at the time of uh, progression. In, that, in other words, the goal here is to find something that will prevent transformation. So does early treatment do that? So maybe. Rituximab clearly does uh, protect against transformation. On the right, you see a series uh, with multiple studies. This was recently published in Lancet Hematology. On the bottom of that right panel, you see multiple studies. The data was pooled. Over 8,000 patients uh, evaluated, and you can see that rituximab was clearly associated with a reduced risk of transformation. And in general, the more rituximab that was given, the less uh, transformation that was experienced. On the right, or on the left, sorry, on the left, I said the right, now I'm on the right, uh, you can see on the top uh, panel uh, that study with the pool data looked at early treatment versus watch and wait. Again, this is not a randomized trial. It's an observational design, but we've got over 8,000 patients in this series. And at five years, there was a very small protective risk. At 10 years, that uh, rate of transformation declined even more to the point that it reached statistical significance. Again, not a randomized study. The only randomized study to look at this is the Ardeshna study, and there was, in fact, no statistical uh, difference there. There was a small trend, but the number of patients was 50-fold fewer than in the uh, larger data set. So how about overall survival? This is the key, right? So I'll, I'll set the stage by saying that historically I have argued that follicular lymphoma a disease, is a disease of excess morbidity, not one of excess mortality. And on the left panels, you can see both in uh, Minnesota and in France, uh, black curves and red curves. The red curves are the average survival of the populations in those uh, places, Minnesota and, and France, without follicular lymphoma. The black curves are those patients who did not experience a, a progression event within the first 12 months of diagnosis either observed or following immunochemotherapy, and they have overlapping survival with the normal population. So most people with follicular lymphoma, the vast majority will live as long as somebody without follicular lymphoma. That same data set, however, showed us that despite the fact that most people with follicular lymphoma are living as long as people without follicular lymphoma, they are still dying from follicular lymphoma. In fact, close to 60% of people with follicular lymphoma will die from follicular lymphoma. This is different than prostate cancer, where we tell people you will die with prostate cancer, not from it. People do die from follicular lymphoma, and when you're young, less than 60, although fortunately uh, the death rate is quite low, it's follicular lymphoma more than anything else, quite convincingly, that is overwhelmingly the uh, problem that we're dealing with. So clearly, not only do we have to develop treatments that are less toxic, but we still have a major need for treatments that are going to be more effective. So follicular lymphoma is an interesting disease in that it continues to evolve over time. We start with a, a B cell that has acquired a 1418 translocation that it, uh, subsequently goes through the germinal center multiple times. During these multiple passages through the germinal center, it acquires additional mutations, acquiring uh, ongoing genomic instability because of ongoing activity of active uh, AID. 
And so theoretically, if we intervene early, potentially we could intervene before some of this genomic instability has uh, occurred. I think it's an argument that uh, can be made. Whether that's true, I don't know, but it's a reasonable argument. So is there a data set that shows that intervening early does that? And I don't honestly know that there is, but I tried to find uh, one that maybe shows that. So this is early-stage follicular lymphoma. So these are arguably the patients with the least uh, clonal evolution at, of, of all patients, the most uh, probably genetically stable uh, lesions that exist. It's a large study from, well, semi-large study from Australia, randomizing patients with stage one follicular lymphoma to radiation or radiation plus chemotherapy. Clearly, there was a progression-free survival uh, benefit in the patients getting chemotherapy, mostly because if they're relapsing outside of the radiation field, then chemotherapy will deal with that. But interestingly, there was a small but not statistically significant trend in overall survival as well. I'm not sure that this uh, would change my practice patterns yet, but you do wonder if that study were done in a larger set of patients, would the hazard ratio go closer to 1 or would it move out uh, closer to 0.5 where it is right now? So I would argue that early intervention might be effective if we intervene before dangerous subclones emerge, if that's even possible. If we could use a drug that has significant anti-cancer activity and is not uh, limited by toxicity, and that toxicity could be inducing new dangerous mutations in the lymphoma cell. It could be inducing uh, long-lasting damage to the immune repertoire, which was sort of the topic of one of the discussions uh, from the recent uh, basic science session. And, and also that it doesn't induce damage to non-cancer cells, like myeloid cells, for example, in the bone marrow. So does rituximab do that, uh, lenalidomide, others? So this is the AUGMENT trial, and I would argue, and it's debatable, but the AUGMENT trial, uh, in, so was a randomized trial in people with recurrent follicular lymphoma. Uh, these were pe people who did not have typical indications for real chemotherapy. They had to be uh, rituximab responsive and could be reasonably randomized to rituximab. These patients were then randomized between rituximab and rituximab lenalidomide. And interestingly, there was an overall survival benefit uh, to this group. So for whatever reason, it's uh, true that there was an overall survival benefit with the R-squared regimen, potentially suggesting that in a group of people without traditional indications for treatment granted in the relapse setting, uh, intervention, earlier intervention with a effective uh, therapy, potentially a non-toxic therapy, actually improved overall survival. How about cost? So this is a study from uh, Canada that was the topic of one of those questions. It was uh, repeated as well in the UK. And there are a lot of key assumptions here and some interesting modeling uh, uh, by Anka Prika and Matt Chung from uh, Toronto, uh, Princess Margaret and Sunnybrook. And if you believe all of the assumptions and you look at their model, so they took, it, they took different options, either watch and wait, rituximab induction, or rituximab maintenance, and then assumed that somebody would get chemotherapy at the time of first relapse, that there would be, again be some progression-free interval, and then they would get more chemotherapy. They assumed a total of four potential cycles through this scenario, and ultimately, interestingly, the rituximab induction came out to be cheaper during the lifespan of this person than the watch-and-wait patient. Uh, the rituximab maintenance was also cheaper, but are still more expensive than rituximab induction. So there are at least two countries where rituximab, uh, at the time of initial therapy, might be less expensive 
there and watch and wait. So early intervention of therapy uh, may uh, provide the longest treat interval, probably true at least with less intensive therapies. I'm not sure we know that with chemotherapy per se. Uh, I think that it's probably true that about a quarter of people do experience a health decline uh, during the watch and wait period, and so treating them earlier could theoretically be beneficial. Initially, there might be an improvement in quality of life uh, through early intervention. It's unclear to me whether we do reduce the risk of transformation, but it's possible. Fortunately, transformation is relatively rare. It's possible, or hypothetical anyways, that we could reduce clonal evolution through early intervention. I think that needs to be further explored. And at least in Canada and the UK, it's possible that early intervention could actually save money. Thank you. Hi, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much to the organizers for inviting me to be a part of this Congress. Uh, I'm very happy to provide the counter-argument to uh, watch and wait in follicular lymphoma. Um, I would propose that the answer to that is no, and I'll provide some (coughs) arguments in favor of observation. And you'll see today that um, Dr. Martin and I have very similar slides, but the interpretation can be quite different. I don't know that there's a clear answer in this particular case. Here are my disclosures. So we've heard a lot this morning on the pathogenesis of follicular lymphoma as a disease that arises from naive B cells in the bone marrow that acquire 14-18 translocation due to an error in in VDJ recombination. They then home to the germinal center where they undergo somatic hypermutation and class switch recombination. And upon exposure to follicular dendritic cells, they either undergo apoptosis or are rescued from apoptosis due to ectopic expression of BCL2. And subsequently, these cells go on to acquire secondary events leading to disease progression and transformation. The concept of observation in follicular lymphoma arose from studies at Stanford in the 1970s that observed that patients with indolent lymphoma, primarily those who had follicular lymphoma, had a very long life expectancy, whether they were treated with chemotherapy or not. And from there, the concept arose of whether this indolent behavior could lend itself to a more conservative initial treatment approach. But for whom is observation really appropriate? So this question uh, that we saw earlier this morning was taken from a woman who I saw in the consult service and then again in clinic this week. She's a 66-year-old woman with uh, limited past medical history who presented to the emergency room for self-limited abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. Her physical exam was essentially normal, and her abdomen and pelvis CT showed a small amount of fluid in the pelvis with incidental mesenteric lymphadenopathy measuring uh, 4 centimeters by 1.2 centimeters. She also had a CT of the chest showing small volume lymphadenopathy, but her lab work was completely normal. She had a PET scan showing no extranodal sites of disease, and her bone marrow was negative. So here the question is, what is the appropriate treatment for her? And there are a number of different treatment strategies available to us, but which one is the best to choose? As uh, Peter Martin said earlier, there are numerous clinical prognostic factors that are used at the time of diagnosis to help predict outcome. So the FLIPI score was taken from the pre-rituximab era using a combination of clinical and laboratory factors that can classify patients into various risk groups depending on the number of factors present. 
And then in the rituximab era, the FLIPI-2 helps to predict for progression-free survival, again, by similarly grouping a number of clinical and laboratory features to predict for PFS. Uh, in Towards a precision approach, the German Lymphoma Study Group uh, created the M7 FLIPI as a clinical uh, risk classifier to identify patients with poor risk follicular lymphoma, combining clinical factors including high-risk FLIPI score and poor performance status with mutational status of seven genes that could very accurately distinguish patients into either high or low risk and also was able to outperform the FLIPI score. Investigators from the PRIMA study looked at gene expression levels associated with outcome and patients treated on PRIMA, but also validated in three independent cohorts of patients from University of Iowa and Barcelona. And here, uh, patients that had this particular gene expression signature were more likely to have early disease-related events and worse progression-free survival compared to patients with a low-risk uh, gene predictor score. So these are some of the tools currently available to us, both clinically and biologically, to help understand uh, who is more vulnerable to a poor prognosis in follicular lymphoma that could help us understand who is more uh, appropriate for treatment selection. Many studies have demonstrated that the survival of follicular lymphoma is continuously improving. This 25-year experience from five studies at MD Anderson show a stepwise improvement in follicular lymphoma survival with the use of evolving therapies, beginning with 65% overall survival at five years to 95% survival um, with the incorporation of immunotherapy. A more contemporary analysis from Stanford University over four decades demonstrated that in the rituximab era, median overall survival is not yet reached, likely exceeding 20 years without a, uh, an appreciable um, suggestion of a plateau. And for patients on this study that were initially observed at various uh, throughout all different eras, when they were compared to those that underwent immediate treatment as their strategy, there was no change in overall survival, and that's likely due to better treatments at the time of relapse. Observation as a selection for limited stage follicular lymphoma was touched on a little bit, um, and this was also studied in the National Lymphocure Analysis, where 471 patients with stage 1 follicular lymphoma were, uh, underwent a variety of different treatment strategies. A subset of these had very rigorous complete staging, which included PET scan and bone marrow biopsy. 30% of these patients received observation as their frontline treatment strategy, and you can see here that while in this particular uh, group, combined modality therapy and our chemotherapy did have a better progression-free survival compared to watchful waiting, this did not translate into an overall survival benefit because the majority of patients here had excellent overall survival at seven years. For advanced stage follicular lymphoma, the assessment of tumor burden, as Peter described previously, can help identify patients who are more likely to have morbidity and mortality from follicular lymphoma and in whom treatment may be more appropriate. And the most commonly used of these is the GELF criteria. And a Sorry about that. Can I go back? Um, can we go back one? Uh, the GELF criteria here, um, which 
anyone meeting one of, one or more of these criteria is considered as having advanced uh, tumor burden, high tumor burden disease. However, randomized studies have demonstrated that there is no survival benefit for early initiation of treatment for patients who do not meet this criteria who have low tumor burden disease. There are three randomized controlled studies comparing observation with chemotherapy in low tumor burden follicular lymphoma, all of who had, that have been conducted in the pre-rituximab era. In the 1980s, watchful waiting was compared against aggressive induction chemotherapy with promesmop, and at 25 years, overall survival was the same in both arms, with no difference in rates of histologic transformation. In the 1990s, the GILA looked at watchful waiting com uh, compared with prednamustine and interferon alpha, and there was no t difference in time-to-treatment failure, no difference in time-to-next treatment, and no difference in histologic transformation, arguing that early initiation of treatment has no survival, um, there is no survival advantage for patients with low tumor burden follicular lymphoma. And the largest of these studies was done by Ardeshna in the UK, comparing watchful waiting with chlorambucil, and similar results were seen here with no change in overall survival. And importantly, nearly 20% of patients still did not need any chemotherapy at the 10-year mark. The only randomized study in the rituximab era was conducted um, a few years ago looking at observation versus rituximab in low tumor burden disease. Here, patients were randomized to either weekly rituximab for four doses, rituximab followed by maintenance, or observation. And the rituximab induction monotherapy arm was closed after three years, and so we're here seeing results using only uh, maintenance rituximab, but the, time to, the primary endpoint here was time to next treatment and quality of life six months after the conclusion of rituximab. And you can see here that patients did, in fact, have a longer time to next treatment with the use of rituximab followed by maintenance compared to patients that were initially observed. But again, there was no difference in rates of histologic transformation, although the numbers were small, and um, there was no change in overall survival. Quality of life assessment, however, did show that there was, compared from baseline to uh, the completion of rituximab six months after the completion of rituximab, there was an improvement in their mental adjustment to cancer scale for patients on maintenance rituximab compared to those undergoing watchful waiting. The illness coping scale was stable in those patients who received induction uh, with rituximab followed by maintenance compared to those in whom were observed, it deteriorated. And then patients that were receiving rituximab also worried less about their need for subsequent therapy compared to those undergoing maintenance. So this is an important consideration given that these patients are living numerous decades with their disease and it's an important aspect to think about when selecting treatment. Recently, the National Lymphic Care Study also looked at observation and our chemotherapy in patients with advanced stage follicular lymphoma. And the National Lymphic Care Study, it's an observational prospective cohort where the treatment selection is guided by physician preference. And in this observational study, about a quarter of patients were observed, two-thirds received our chemotherapy, and about 17 got rituximab monotherapy. Patients in this study that were observed were more likely to be women and had uh, low-risk features of their disease, such as low-grade disease and um, lower LDH without any B symptoms. And there was also a geographic um, difference in terms of their uh, selection. However, you can see here, as has been demonstrated previously, that patients who underwent observation did, in fact, have a shorter progression-free survival compared to those who received rituximab monotherapy and those who received our chemotherapy, 2.4 years compared to 4 years and 7 
seven years, but yet this did not translate into any benefit in overall survival. Patients undergoing observation had the same overall survival compared to those receiving rituximab monotherapy, and those receiving observation had the same overall survival long-term compared with patients receiving our chemotherapy. Again, arguing for perhaps a more conservative approach. What about observation for patients at the time of recurrent disease? We, we, a couple of years ago, we published results in the National Lymphocare Study looking at length of first remission and predicting outcome in patients with re recurrent follicular lymphoma. Patients here were looked at who were treated with RCHOP chemotherapy and had recurrence of disease within 24 months of diagnosis. And you can see the bottom curve, patients with early relapse had inferior survival compared to those in the reference group with an overall survival that was 90%. Um, for, this was also validated in an independent cohort of patients from the University of Iowa and Mayo Clinic and has subsequently been looked at in other groups. And as Peter also showed the, it, at the University of Iowa and Mayo Clinic, patients who remained event-free at 12 months from the time of diagnosis had no excess mortality compared to the general population. And this was independent of any treatment that they initially received, including observation. However, those that had an early disease-related event did have inferior outcomes. We validated these findings in the FLASH analysis of over 5,000 patients on 13 clinical trials, uh, again showing the difference in outcome for patients with early versus later progression. And these are some of the factors that emerged as being relevant in more patients more likely to have an early disease-related event. And recent data from the British Columbia Cancer Agency and also from the PRIMA study suggests that a significant proportion of these patients may have transformation, particularly after treatment with bendamustine. In light of the um, poor outcome for patients with early treatment failure, the National Clinical Trials Network has developed the S1608 study that's randomizing patients with early treatment failure to an obinutuzumab-based backbone with either a PI3 kinase inhibitor, lenalidomide, or chopbendamustine, depending on what they had initially in their induction. And again, this is for those with a more vulnerable status who relapse um, within two years of their treatment or are refractory to frontline treatment. So given all these data, what are some considerations for choosing observation at the time of follicular lymphoma diagnosis? I think that on the basis of a long natural history for follicular lymphoma, where the vast majority of patients will have very favorable outcomes, observation is a very reasonable choice for someone who has favorable clinical features, favorable biologic features, if that's something that's available at the time of diagnosis, someone who is asymptomatic with low tumor burden disease, Given that there is no overall survival when, with early treatment initiation based on three large, four large randomized clinical trials, I think that's something that has to be taken into consideration. We talked about cost and some toxicity, and certainly while this meta-analysis demonstrates that induction with rituximab results in a lower cost compared to some other strategies, that may not take into account the number of visits for patients that are, um, on, were on observation or the number of imaging studies that have to be done to monitor for uh, progressive disease. Why would you choose treatment at the time of diagnosis? I think that that may be better for patients that have high tumor burden disease, for patients that have limited stage disease in whom initiation with radiotherapy, combined modality therapy, or our chemotherapy does result in very long, durable uh, disease control with the possibility of a plateau. 
There is conflicting impact on the risk of transformation. All of the studies that I demonstrated to you today did not, dem- did not show an increased risk of transformation, although the Aristotle study, which was the pooled analysis published in The Lancet, did suggest a small increased risk of transformation that has not been um, shown in, a, in the randomized setting. There's also the consideration of anxiety and fear for patients that are on no treatment or who have um, anxiety over what their next treatment may look like. Considerations for relapse disease. Why choose observation at the time of relapse? If someone has a very short remission duration, observation at the time of relapse um, is sorry, if they have a very long remission duration, observation at the time of relapse is something worth considering for those that have low tumor burden disease or who are minimally symptomatic. And if there's a desire to sequence treatment or to plan subsequent therapies, observation is reasonable. For patients who have relapsed disease, treatment might be appropriate for those that have short remission duration, who have transformation, or who have a high tumor burden of illness. So to conclude here, I think that what I've demonstrated is that their survival is really excellent for the vast majority of patients with follicular lymphoma and really underscores a strong need to personalize the approach to these patients, both at diagnosis and at the time of disease recurrence, based on whatever risk status they might have, and focus on the populations that are most vulnerable to poor outcomes. And I strongly believe that in the absence of any treatment superiority or survival benefit, the goal should be to minimize toxicity while preserving quality of life. And as we've also seen, if we don't observe at least some patients, we will end up over-treating many. Thank you for your attention.